Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Sean Evans and Michael Lerner. Sean Evans, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Sean, uh, you have worked here at Commonweal. Um, you are now the managing director of the Tamil Pius Trust, um, a uh, organization we want to talk more about. Before that, you were the managing director of the Tides Foundation, and for 10 years, you were the executive director for programs at the Lannan Foundation in New Mexico. Um, but um, my sense is that you often think of yourself much more as a, a poet and photographer who engages in these other forms of service work. Your identity seems at core to involve more Buddhist contemplative practice, uh, photography, poetry, the arts, human rights, uh, indigenous and environmental advocacy. So I'm kind of trying to circle in at the start uh, as to how you see yourself in this world. How, who is Joan Evans? What uh, came to me as you were speaking was a, an article by Brother David Stendelrast that I read many years ago called The Monk in All of Us. So I would tell you that that is the identity that I feel closest to. And, uh, and I've always had a creative um, energy and, and uh, passion in my life, uh, much of it having to do with uh, spirit. So when you speak of the monk in all of us and reference uh, Brother David Steindl-Rast, the amazing um, Catholic monk um, with whom we did a spiritual biography um, some time ago, and you actually were the person who introduced us to Brother David. Um, can you say more about how far back in your life that sense of, uh, you can identify that sense of uh, the monk uh, within? As a little girl, I used to sit at the end of the driveway throwing stones into uh, sort of overgrown woods and uh, I would make up stories that I would speak aloud. Mostly stories about uh, sort of high um, childish drama, uh, uh, but uh, the imagined world that was very difficult, and there would be a savior, 
uh, in it, and usually that character was um, uh, some sort of hybrid of Nancy Drew and uh, Anne of Green Gables. And um, for me, it was very important, Mary Magdalene, who I think I was pretty um, confused. I didn't really know who she was, but I knew she wasn't Mother Mary, but somehow Mary Magdalene was more of the common um, woman. And I knew she had done something heroic, but I didn't know what it was. So because I do best with people's stories, um, and I'd love to begin to harvest your story starting at the very beginning. So uh, where were you born and raised? I was born in Connecticut, Westport, Connecticut, where I was raised and was there until I was 15. And what kind of family did you grow up in? I grew up in a family of illness, great uh, pain, uh, some um, alcoholism, and um, uh, also as an only child and as a, a, a tomboy who was outdoors a lot of the time. My mother had very severe rheumatoid arthritis and Parkinson's disease. She was a manic depressive. She was? A manic depressive, yeah. which these days bipolar. Mm -hmm. uh, my father had, an, uh, had grand mal epilepsy that was uh, uncontrolled. His, um, most of his entire um, adult life. So they were in a lot of pain and complicated. Probably before they were married and their marriage was um, extremely difficult, uh, at times violent. And they battled it out for about 40 years. Hmm. How did your family make a living? My Mother had been uh, the vice president, creative director of an advertising agency in New York, and my father had been the creative director of another advertising agency. He remained in advertising his whole working life on Madison Avenue and took the train Westport to New York every day for 40-some years. Mm -hmm. What were you like in eighth grade? Oh, God, Michael. Um... Well, I was, uh, I was in the literary club. Um, I was a, a broad jumper. Um, I uh, was writing poetry and, and uh, not showing it to anybody. And was uh, the brunette friend to all the blonde girls. <laughs> And what were you like as a senior in high school? Well, I, I escaped that family situation when I was 15 and um, arrived at a girls' school for my senior year. 
And it was the first time I'd been away from them, really. I was, where was, where was that? This was Mary Burnham School for Girls in Northampton, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. on the Smith campus. Mm -hmm. So I immediately assumed I was going to be the next Sylvia Plath because she had gone to Smith. Um, and the truth was that I flourished in an atmosphere away from my parents, finally. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to, I'm, I'm thinking I have to go back for a second and, and say uh, something, an homage to the woman who really raised me for the first six years of my life. My mother was very sick after I was born and went into a hospital for uh, almost all of the six years, wow. four, six years. And her gift to me was that she hired a black woman to come be the housekeeper. Mm -hmm. Her name was Ida. Mm -hmm. She adored me. Mm -hmm. She taught me uh, all kinds of things. Um, some about how to cook and also some just about how to be happy uh, mm -hmm. in the world. And when I went to kindergarten, the guidance counselor called my dad and said, she's doing fine. Motor skills are good. We just have this one question. She tells everyone she's a Negro. What's that about? Oh, amazing. And I was in this all white, you know, very sort of Tony town. I knew I wasn't her child, but my affinity with her gave me both a lot of courage and also, um, uh, I think, a sense of uh, uh, love and uh, fine, fine discernment about um, um, how to be available and, and caring for people, because that's who she was. Wow. Yeah. How beautiful. So I stayed in touch with her till she was in her 80s. Uh, and really throughout my childhood, even though she did not stay at the house after my mom came home, um, she influenced me. And when I finally did get away, as I say, by myself there in my senior year, I was able to um, spread my wings, be mm. free. Hmm. So you went to college at Sarah Lawrence? I went to many colleges. Oh. Sarah Lawrence was where I graduated from. Uh -huh. mm. How did that happen, many colleges? Well, I started out after graduating from that high school. I was only 16, but I, I wanted to go to college, and I wanted to go as far away from Connecticut as I possibly could. And I went to the University of Arizona. 1968, and the world being what it was at that time, I remember arriving in a little green linen dress with green patent leather shoes, and when I came home a year later, I had combat boots and army pants and t-shirt, no bra, and my hair was like a bush woman. My parents were horrified. Uh, and I had actually um, 
stopped living on campus after the first six months and gone to live on a Yaqui Indian reservation where they needed someone who would uh, do some English composition work. The, the tribe was at war with both the United States and Mexico and they didn't have people who could do really fine um, reading of documents. Mm. So I was a kid, I was a student, but whoa, what, a, mm. what an education I got. Amazing. And after that? Um, after that, my, I went back home to, not home-home, but I went to New York. Um, my parents were in great struggle with each other. My mother was back in a mental hospital at the time. And I don't know how it happened, but I got a job at McCall's Magazine uh, as a receptionist sitting out in front of the McCall's kitchen, reading the fiction submissions, the unsolicited fiction submissions, and writing the letters of rejection to the people who had sent these manuscripts. And I did that for um, almost a year. I enrolled in the new school at night, uh, took some film courses there, and then I heard that there were scholarships being um, given at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where a friend had gone. They were admitting their first class of women. So I applied and got a full scholarship, which I needed. Uh, so by that time, it was uh, 1970. And the student strike happened um, right after, I guess it was, must have been 69 that I entered because the spring of 70 was Kent State. And, uh, and we were madly producing a production of uh, The Trial of the Catonsville Nine, um, the Berrigan play at the time the school closed. And I, uh, I thought, well, this is, you know, activism is for me. I, I think the arts and activism are what I'm going to do, and I'm going to find out a way to do that. The next chapter really is about uh, going to work in New York after the college closed down. We, we, uh, all, I think, sort of dispersed, and um, some people went to other colleges. I didn't. I went to work, and I had met someone at a party who had recently gotten a job at NBC in the ticket office for the game shows, and he said, there's a job available for someone to book the little kids on the tour at NBC. It's $90 a week. Why don't you take it? And I did. I got it. And I started looking around NBC, and that looked like a pretty fascinating place that had, in those days, it still had the Hallmark Hall of Fame, and um, 
some big dramatic productions. Uh, again, I was, you know, really enamored of the arts and uh, saw that these studios that had cameras and, and boom mics and lighting equipment, I thought that looked fascinating and, and I applied for a job in the studios and was told that they didn't hire women. So I asked if they would keep my name handy because I figured that they were going to be having to do that soon. And the guy who interviewed me said, over my dead body. I said, well, you know, just you know, give me a, uh, a holler if, you, if you're down there on the floor on, uh, in your dead body. And he did call about six months later and said, all right, we'll give you a trial. Um, we'll hire you for three months, and if you can do anything at the end of that, we'll, we'll give you a real job. But you have to go join the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union first. So it was actually easy to do that. They were happy to have me if I would pay my money and if I would promise to someday be a shop steward because nobody wanted those jobs. And uh, there's a whole series of you know, steps, but I ended up uh, becoming a camerawoman, um, and I did get hired. I was very lucky. One man in particular took mercy on me and said he would teach me how to do the camera. Camera was sort of the the big deal that everybody said you know, girl, a girl couldn't do. Uh, and he trained me after work and on weekends for almost the whole three months because he wanted to get off the assignment that he had. He needed a replacement. And uh, he called in sick one day and said, the girl can do it. I've been training her. So with my knees knocking, I did it. And ended up, this comes back to you know college and Sarah Lawrence, I ended up, I went to PBS after... NBC, and then I went to ABC. Also as a camera person? Uh, I, I, at PBS, I started doing some production work and uh, ultimately became uh, an associate producer and then a producer. And when I went then to ABC, I was both a technical director and a producer. Um, and ABC had a lot of money in the mid-'70s. And they offered... Uh, back to college courses, they would pay if you went, if you worked full time. So I applied to Sarah Lawrence, and they said, "Well, you know, we were thinking like City College." I said, "Well, it doesn't say that, and I want to go to Sarah Lawrence. Couldn't I please go?" And, uh, I got to go there. You know, it was a dream, and they helped me fulfill it. It was a great education for me. Little classes, um, everybody was a writer or a You philosopher. know, my mother went to Sarah Lawrence. No, I didn't know that. And when she was at Sarah Lawrence, the two luminaries were Joseph Campbell and my father, Pax Lerner. And um, that's where they met. And uh, Oh, my. Yeah. Huh. And... Uh, 
my father's first wife came home one day and said to my father, I've just met the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And she brought my mother home as a babysitter and then encouraged my father to take my mother up to Harlem to jazz clubs to show her the town. So it must have been... Oh, my. <laughs> so anyway, um, yes, Sarah Lawrence is an amazing place. Mm -hmm. A lot of creative people have gone there, so I can imagine mm -hmm. it was a dream. Mm -hmm. So that brings us up through your college years, and then you got a master's at Johns Hopkins in creative writing from 1984 to 1986. So you keep coming back to the arts I do. Uh, as a core theme. Um, that was after several years at a Zen monastery, yes. Oh, that was after, after yes. several years at a yes. Zen monastery. Where was the Zen monastery? Uh, I was in New York uh, on the banks of the Hudson. So is that Bernie? That's Bernie Glassman, yeah. Yeah, Bernie Glassman. And uh, that was um, after ABC. Uh, I, I asked for a leave of absence. I, I, at Sarah Lawrence, I read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and a book by Ekmath S. Warren called Gandhi the Man, and my whole life just completely changed. Uh-huh. Uh, it was there that I also started to read Brother David. Uh-huh. I wanted to learn how to meditate. I came to uh, the San Francisco Zen Center on vacation. I dragged my then-husband, Peter, who was very resistant. I like Zen aesthetics, he said. I, I don't want to do the other stuff. I'm... Who was Peter? Peter Cunningham, who's a photographer and um, oh. longtime uh, friend and, and uh, uh, really luminary in my life. Uh, we were uh, married for some years and we've been friends ever since. He's a famous photographer, isn't he? We, he Quite is famous. well known, yeah, yes, yeah. and was a rock and roll photographer when we knew each other. Uh, but has really become a, an artist uh -huh. and filmmaker. And so the Zen monastery, two years with Bernie Glassman. No, no, it was not two years. It, oh. No, no, it was many years. Oh, many years. Many years, okay. yeah. Many years. Was, okay. Uh, so let's talk about years. Bernie Glassman. Who is Bernie Glassman? Oh. Do you think I really would answer such a question? Who is Bernie Glassman? <laughs> I thought I'd ask. <laughs> oh. Revered Zen master, American Zen master. Kind of a, an urban legend almost, right, in, in the Zen field. Mm -hmm. Do I remember that he went down the street in New York giving people money? Is that something else? No, he, he does the, these retreats in the Bowery. Oh, okay. And people have to, with a court, um, live on the streets for Oh, that's what it week. is. You have to live on the streets for, for a week. week with a quarter? Mm -hmm. Did you do that? I did not. No, this uh, was after my time. Oh, that was after you. No, I was in the bakery um, uh, sort of phase of Bernie's teachings uh, where we started a bakery, and I was 
you know, I, I, we all voted on did we want our livelihood as a, uh, a florist sort of conglomerate or uh, an elder care service or a bakery. And I voted for the flowers and most people voted for the bakery. So when we did the bakery, he said, you're gonna be the sales director. <laughs> no, I don't wanna be. It didn't matter what I wanted to be at all. It was almost a sure thing if you told Bernie you didn't want to do something. You ended up doing it. Where was the bakery? It was in Yonkers, in a, an old warehouse that we redid. Did it succeed in some way? It, yes, in some way. It was wildly successful in terms of sales. And you were the sales director? I was the sales director. It, it, it did very well in that way. However, it burned out the workforce several times. We couldn't keep Zen students because we were only working. We were now 16, 18 hours a day. And uh, Did if, Bernie die? Is he still alive? No, no, Bernie's alive. Okay. Uh, very much so. Um, okay. Lives in Montague, Massachusetts. Um, he has become, I, I want to say, a collaborator, maybe almost a disciple uh, of Wavy Gravy. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. And has learned to clown. But he still goes to uh, uh, Auschwitz in Dachau where he does retreats each couple of years. Are you still in touch with him? Peter is. Mm -hmm. I know very well through Peter. Uh, He's disrobed and... uh, uh, is really a, a, a radical expression of Zen in America. Beloved. You're listening to a conversation with John Evans and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. So then, the Zen experience with Bernie, and then the creative writing masters at... Mm-hmm. So that took you in a whole new direction. That, didn't that get you involved with it the did. HIV work? It did. Yeah. And I have something I could read. I love that. But it, it, it's about eight minutes long. Is that too long? Go for it. Yeah, I think this will tell a little bit more of the story. My current teacher, um, wonderful Norman Fisher, asked a couple of years ago, if a few of us would write, or actually give a talk, and because I'm not so good at public speaking, I wrote it instead, to give a talk about what does religion mean to me. So this was what I wrote. It's called Nine Pearls. When I first heard the Dalai Lama say, kindness is my true religion, the words really hit home. Many years later, an 80-year-old Zen master told me, our practice is a string of pearls. So this is a story about kindness and a practice of stringing pearls. Deep in the woods of Oregon in 1985, at the end of a 10-day silent retreat on death and dying, our teacher, Stephen Levine, instructed us to turn to the person beside us and offer something that felt like a risk. Though the month was August, the man I turned toward shivered under a mound of gray fleece. 
He wore a ski cap, sweatpants, big puffy mittens that looked like boxing gloves, and heavy woolen socks. When I offered him a foot massage, he didn't even turn to look at me. You wouldn't want to massage my feet, he said. He slowly unrolled one of his socks to reveal a spray of deep purple polka dots across the instep of his skinny naked foot. Do you see that one, he asked, pointing directly to the largest dot of all upon his arch. I nodded. That was the first one. Even though I'm a nurse, he said, I didn't even know what it was at the time. We both stared at the splotch, a half inch diameter, shaped perfectly like a heart. Now, do you still want to give me a foot massage, he asked. That bold little purple heart that made me say yes that day without hesitating is the first pearl of this story. When I arrived at Johns Hopkins University a few weeks later to begin a graduate fellowship in writing, I registered my thesis as The Ecology of AIDS, People Who Are Dying and Their Caregivers. The chairman initially rejected my topic, saying it should be fiction. But when I persisted, he finally agreed as long as I could find someone to sponsor me at the medical school. I got an appointment with Hank Shaw, a maverick infectious disease physician in the epidemiology department at the medical school. When he heard my proposal, he stopped and looked me straight in the eye. Okay, he said, but here's the deal. You can follow me around as long as you don't get in the way too much. You've got to enroll in three classes, epidemiology, infectious disease, and immunology. And within a month, you have to find a way to be useful. This is an epidemic. There's no time to waste. We need every heart and body we can get. Got it? So Dr. Hank Shaw is the second pearl. During the next 18 months, as the AIDS epidemic revealed itself as a modern-day plague, I came to know many life stories of those first Hopkins AIDS patients intimately. They were migrant farm workers from rural chicken farms, hustlers from Baltimore's Tenderloin District, poor American, African-American women who were sleeping with IV drug users. Only a few gay white men lay dying with us at that time in inner Baltimore. No matter who they were, though, regardless of race, class, gender, or sexual orientation, the hospital was the only option for them in those days. There were no community services in place to care for them if they were discharged. No home care, no hospice, no interfaith network of volunteers, nothing. Hank assigned me first to the sickest patient on the floor, Randy Johns. When I arrived at the visitor's desk for the initial visit, Feeling nervous, the female guard barked at me. Visiting hours are over in 15 minutes. Where are you going? What's the patient's name? Uh, Randy Johns on Osler 5. Oh, sure, okay. Those people really need visitors up there, she said, and then picked up the phone and called the nurse's station on that floor. Randy Johns' cousin is coming up to see him, she purred into the phone. Let her stay a little past time, will you? I dreaded going up to that room under those false pretenses, but I didn't argue with her. A nurse met me at the elevator door with a slight smile, saying, He doesn't have many visitors. Been here over a month, and he's so sick. 
His room was darkening in twilight as I crossed the threshold. The nurse flipped on the light switch to reveal a tiny black pencil of a man swaddled in white sheet. What part of my family are you from? He laughed, holding out a stick-thin arm to me. Pearl number three. Randy and I spent part of every day together after that for the next two months. I brought my epidemiology textbooks to his bedside and we listened to music of his choice on a beat-up eight-track tape deck. I also often stood guard at his door while he slumped in his wheelchair before the open window, smoking a cigarette. He introduced himself to everyone as Bojangles. When pressed for more detail, he would offer, I'm a street musician, a flashy dancer. He played the harmonica and any instrument with strings, and he described himself to me once, quote, a cross between Taj Mahal and Miles Davis, only better. He had moved to Baltimore in his late teens and had, many, and had made money by cooking at the fry table in a big hotel kitchen. Calling himself a weekend heroin addict, he was loosely committed to a mostly absent common-law wife who sold cocaine in high-end hotels and did hair in low-end beauty salons. But he was totally devoted to their two-year-old daughter, Miranda who was dropped off by her mother in the hospital lobby play care center nearly every day. Children were not yet allowed on the AIDS floor in those early days, but when he found out she was on site just five floors below his room, he became agitated. Go down and bring her up, he insisted to me, knowing it was futile. As I struggled to pass my own advanced science courses, I continued to follow Hank and his courageous team of interns and grad students around the hospital. Soon I began to receive additional assignments from him like, find out why there's no spiritual care on this floor, will you? Why can't the kids visit their moms up here? When you know why, make it happen. Get some great downtown bakery to donate chocolate croissants for the staff up here, yeah? My primary usefulness evolved as I became involved in community outreach and volunteer training. It was an epidemic and we needed help. And Randy continued to waste away. He got down to 80 pounds, becoming drug resistant to every antibiotic ever used to treat pneumocystis pneumonia. At that point, Hank found us a way to get Veranda up into his room. This virus isn't infectious, he'd say, unless you're sharing needles or having sex. And he repeated it over and over again to everyone on the floor. But don't go sharing Coca-Colas or giving anybody a big sloppy kiss either, he warned. I brought the baby often into Randy's room during those last four days. Even as his life force dimmed, he brightened each time she entered the room. Hi, little V, he would say. Hi, baby. Miranda looked so much like him. Almond-shaped eyes, long lashes, and an expression of mischief, just like her father. Don't bring her too close, he warned me. I don't want her to catch whatever this is. One day, Randy asked for a lawyer. What for, I asked. To write a will, he said. I've got stuff to decide. Hank called the hospital's legal staff and made a special request on Randy's behalf. Send a lawyer with a heart over here, will you? That's not an oxymoron. Someone especially good to take notes from a dying patient. Pearl number four. 
a young Pakistani attorney with a radiant smile arrived within the hour. She pulled a chair up close to Randy's bed and sat poised with pen and notepad. Please tell me, sir, what do you need? I'll write your words down just as you say them. And then she turned to me and Hank, who were accustomed to being in Randy's room all the time, and asked us to leave so she and her client could have some privacy. Randy grinned as we left. They sent Bojangles an angel, he said, with more energy than he'd shown all day. That next morning, Randy asked in her weak voice, hold my head in your hands as I go. Don't leave. Watching his bony chest heave up and down for many hours, sweat beating up on his brow, I held him and breathed with him as if he were in labor. The intervals between his inhalations slowly increased. Exhalations became erratic and shallow. Sliding in and out of lucidity, he sometimes looked me in the eye and babbled in a whispery voice like a scat singer, stringing together little bits of melody nonsense syllables, a liminal language I could not understand. Gray twilight blurred the edges of the bed, the blankets, my hands, Randy's head. Finally, his eyes fluttered and his teeth chattered for a moment, and then his breath stopped. The heat slowly drained from his forehead. We spent an hour there in silence until one of his favorite nurses appeared in the doorway to ask if I wanted to bathe his body together. The experience of bathing Randy's body was the fifth pearl. Exhausted, I finally returned home to my own bed. Early the next morning, Hank called my apartment to tell me that the lawyer wanted to see both of us right away, as soon as I could get back to the hospital. I gripped a cup of coffee as we sat down in her office. She held Randy's will in her hands. He left veranda to you, she told me. What? My heart pounded against my ribs. Yes, he told me his wife disappeared. He wanted you to take care of her. But I can't, I protested, desperately looking for confirmation from Hank, who stoically stared back at me. There's no way I can take care of a baby. No other family, Hank interrupted, silencing me with his eyes. A mother in South Carolina, she said. He hasn't been in touch with her in years. Got an address for her, Hank said. Well, he told me the name of the town. Good, we'll find her. Hank smiled, reached out to hug her. Thanks for helping us and him. Turning to me, he said, the docks on the floor will buy a train ticket for his body and for you and the baby. Epidemiology students know how to track people down now, don't they? It's our specialty, right? Pearl number six was the trip to Columbia, South Carolina. Two days later, Randy's mother and two sisters had been easily located by Hank's epidemiology sleuths. Though in shock, they were grateful to be notified and overjoyed to be receiving Randy's daughter after years of no contact with him. Miranda and I rode a slow, hot train together for 10 hours. Because she knew me, she fussed only a little in my arms at first. 
and slowly became entranced by what she saw flickering by our window. Tobacco fields, backyard clotheslines, wandering dogs. As we pulled into the Columbia Station, I saw three women standing together on the platform, three graceful necks outstretched upward, looking with hope toward the flashing windows of the train. One gray-haired woman looked grandmotherly, and the two younger ones looked to be in their early 30s. Reminded me of three black swans opening their wings to welcome us. Pearl number seven was offered as they greeted Veranda and me by encircling us in their arms, hugging and laughing and crying all at the same time. Since then, we have tried to stay in touch each year at Christmas time. Randy's mother, Della, who died in 2005, would send me a holiday card each year along with two scribbly notes on it, one from her and one from Veranda. Our shared news has not always been good. Loss and grief, two divorces, an eviction, several moves, one arrest, a crippling traffic accident, and more than a few broken promises. For two years, I received no word at all from Veranda as she fell into the hell realms of cocaine addiction in her late teenage years. But in 2009, 24 years after that train trip to South Carolina, I received a formal invitation to the graduation from medical school of Dr. Veranda Johns. She was now qualified to practice as an infectious disease specialist. My father and I both want you to be there, she wrote me. Pearl number eight. Veranda and her two aunts, Randy's sisters, met me at the Columbia Airport. Her almond eyes and long eyelashes were now slightly hidden behind studious-looking eyeglass frames, but her smile was unmistakably just like her father's. For the next two days, I was a guest and a family member in what felt like sacred territory, a grand celebration of relatives, neighbors, and friends, young and old. Tables decorated with roses and candles, overflowing with meats and casseroles, fresh breads, fried okra, sweet potato and apple pie, jello salads, and homemade chocolate drizzle cake. This gathering was the result of a holy succession of kindnesses, connected through the life of one man, a part-time heroin addict and street musician, a father who envisioned in his will a better life for his daughter. We were all now joined by this child's realization of a beautiful life of her own, the life her father had wished for her. This was the offering of pearl number nine. The list of pearls continues in my life to this very day. Great kindness has been extended to me so often in this lifetime, especially when I have fallen down, screwed up, made bad decisions, acted like a total jerk, or gotten lost just when I knew I thought I knew the way. So many helpers have appeared, waiting for me, like those three black swans, known and unknown angels who have met me as I arrived in various stations in my life. Writing down these memories focuses me again on the power of saying yes 
what is scary and difficult and mysterious to the practice of receiving and offering pearls. That's beautiful. Thank you. Made me cry. <laughs> Made me cry. Made Ken Adams, our sound engineer, <laughs> cry too. We're all crying. Wow. Mm-hmm. That was Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was. Mm-hmm. We could stop right there. <laughs> what more is there to say? <laughs> mm-hmm. But life goes on, right? It does. So, what was the next chapter? Well, I fell in love with a doctor there at Johns Hopkins, uh, not Hank Shaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to get married and moved to New Mexico with him. And I said, well, is it one question or two? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, it's really one question because I come from New Mexico mm-hmm. and I'm on my way back. He had a brother who was 10 months older than he was with, with Down syndrome, who was dying of pulmonary troubles that Down's people often get in their 30s. And he wanted to be there. So we got married by Richard Baker, who was at that time in exile. Uh, in so Santa Richard Fe. Baker being the former Roshi at Zen Center That's right. in San Francisco, a That's man of many adventures. Yes. Uh, and and now, uh, now at this time in exile. Right. Yeah. Um, building a, a restaurant there, uh, a vegetarian gourmet restaurant. And though uh, I had had this position at Hopkins where I'd become the director of AIDS at Johns Hopkins Hospital as a result of Hank making up the job uh, ultimately. I could not find work when I got there. New Mexico is a subsistence agriculture state. Uh, It's actually the poorest state in the nation behind Alabama and Mississippi. And uh, the only job I could figure out how to do, besides the volunteer work that I started doing at an AIDS organization when I first got there, was to work in the restaurant. What city were you in? Santa Fe. Santa Fe. So I went to work for $3.33 an hour uh, for Richard Baker, who was, to the rest of the staff, the restaurant owner the cookie restaurant owner. Um, to me, he was still the Zen master. Uh, I was not his student, but I was still a devoted student of Zen. And, uh, and so it became the new learning laboratory for me. And although that job only lasted a short time because the restaurant went bankrupt, I was able to sort of you know, begin a life there in Santa Fe. I ended up getting another job uh, in a hospice in Albuquerque, and we moved to Albuquerque, 
where my husband at the time uh, was at the medical school. And over the course of the next 23 years there in New Mexico, I worked um, at the university hospital. Uh, I worked um, several hospices and then became the deputy director of public health for the state. Did that, um, I, I must say, you know, um, it was it, the worst job I've ever had in my whole life. Mm. It was hardest, most um, litigious, and um, uh, combative kind of job I've ever encountered. And I, I had moments of loving it, but then when the hantavirus epidemic came, I should say the hantavirus outbreak wasn't really an epidemic. Um, I got made uh, the public information director in addition to being the deputy director of the state. It was a horrendous job. Then I really needed to get a different uh, way of make a living. So I got hired uh, at the New Mexico Community Foundation to be their executive director, and I started working in philanthropy. Now, is the Mexico Community Foundation, that's not the Lannan Foundation? No. Okay. No. I worked in the Community Foundation about three years, and then um, met Patrick Lannan, who was moving his foundation from L.A. to New Mexico. So what... What is the Lennon Foundation? Lennon Foundation is a family foundation with programs uh, originally in uh, contemporary visual art and literature, and then they added an indigenous communities program, and when I was there, we added a cultural freedom program, uh, which is a human rights, international human rights kind of program. So you entered philanthropy from this whole other life right. with the New Mexico Community Foundation, then the Lannan Foundation, then uh, uh, the Tides Foundation, mm -hmm. and then um, Tamalpais uh, Trust. Trust. Mm -hmm. So you've been in philanthropy for how long? Mm, since 93. So 20 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you and I have both hung out at this interface between contemplative practice, um, advocacy work, um, uh, uh, arts and culture, um, and philanthropy. So, as you know, I, I wrote a book about philanthropy but, uh, called A Gift Observed, Reflections on Philanthropy and Civilization. And I guess my basic thesis is that um, Philanthropy, at one level, is uh, what everybody says, a privileged position, get to meet a lot of people, wonderful people, get to support wonderful work. But it's not always easy on the soul. So how have you uh, 
sought to keep your soul intact in 20 years in philanthropy? By having a few friends, special allies and friends whose lives are way deeper and more more diverse than than just philanthropy per se. Mm-hmm. I was thinking when you were talking, you're one of the people who has made a big impression on both me and others in terms of your being able to not identify being in philanthropy and to have a rich, full other identity, worlds that you dance in well. One of my big criticisms of philanthropy and the people who work in it is that philanthropy in itself is not much training or or very informative about actually serving people. It depends on other things you've done in your life and the other the other qualities in yourself that you bring make it valuable or not. Yeah, you know, I was always on the I was always the, the beggar with the rattling the tin cup for nonprofit work from you know when I came out here and started full circle of school for delinquent kids after I taught at Yale, and then I started Commonweal in 1976, which was, you know, 38 years ago. So I've been rattling, you know, the beggar's cup for a long time. Um, and I became an accidental philanthropist when two of the alumni of the Cancer Health Program at Commonweal died and left foundations that uh, they left in my care. And I remember the very first grantmaker meeting that I went to, which was an environmental grantmaker meeting in New Mexico. Mm. Were you at that meeting? Mm-hmm. What year was that, roughly, do you remember? But it was like 20 years ago, right? And this was the first time I was coming as a funder. And I'd been to a couple of philanthropy meetings before that as a, you know, one of the panelists of NGOs. And I'd come in you know, with our starving work, you know, just hoping to make some contacts that might possibly lead for grants. And he was overwhelmed by all these grant makers with all this money, but somehow I couldn't figure out how to get traction with any of them, right? So that was my previous experience. So when I came to New Mexico as the uh, president of the Jennifer Altman Foundation uh, 20 years ago for the Environmental Grant Makers Association meeting, and I came into this meeting And it was an unbelievable experience. And what I think of it now as, it was like the court of Louis XIV and Birkenstocks, you know. It was like all these courtiers 
dancing attendance on the dukes and duchesses of the large foundations. Mm. And the only difference from the court of Louis XIV, I mean, Louis XIV, they used to dress up as nursemaids and farmers and stuff like that. And so instead of dressing up as nursemaids and farmers, you know, people were, you know, in blue jeans and this, that. But nonetheless, people were dancing attendance in these complex things. And I looked around and I began to see some of the people who were, you know, re real human beings. There were some real human beings there and really good at this. And I looked at them and I thought, I will never be as good at this as you are. And what's more, I don't want to be. And at the end of it, I remember I was taking a shower in the hotel and what I wanted was to wash the meeting off myself and get as far away from it as I possibly could. That was my entry into mm. the experience of philanthropy. And so I ended up to survive writing this book called A Gift Observe Reflections on Philanthropy and Civilization, the core thesis of which uh, was that, you know, while there was this you know, public narrative that de Tocqueville said that philanthropy was good for civil society. I mean, no, de Tocqueville said that civil society was the great excellence of America. Philanthropy supports civil society. Therefore, philanthropy is part of the great excellence of America. And so my basic question in the book was, if philanthropy is so good for civil society, then why does the country with the greatest philanthropic establishment have the greatest inequity of any advanced industrial country in the world. You know, how does the philanthropy translate if it's good in toto? Mm -hmm. And if you really look at philanthropy, you know, it turns out to be, uh, as one great sociologist put it, a buffer for capitalism, you know. And there's really no net transfer of resources from the wealthy to the poor. And even in social services, where you'd think there'd be a transfer, there isn't. And so writ large, and if you look further, you know, the Reagan revolution is the greatest piece of you know, philanthropic advocacy that anybody ever did in the 20th century uh, in terms of, you know, a few really disciplined conservative foundations who figured out how to remake America in a conservative direction. So, so there are all those meta-issues, but then at the personal level, there is the fact that for the donors, for the program officers and staff, um, very few people who may stay in this for extraordinary reasons of public service, really to do good work, and some of them do do good work, but few of them will tell you that this is good for their soul. Few of them will tell you this is good for your soul. So, and this I, I think of as the shadow narrative of American philanthropy below, below the celebratory narrative because in almost every other field there's a major critical literature but because philanthropy owns the presses and the university centers and everything else it just keeps cranking out this stuff about how wonderful philanthropy is and the shadow literature, the shadow experience I mean there are a few people who do these kind of Marxist critiques which are dull and boring even though Marx is an interesting analysis but many of these things are quite dull, really. Uh, but there's very little that has a sensory, tactical sense, except when you get smart people who work in foundations and have real values together in small groups off the record, and then they will tell each other how it really is. But they will never say that publicly, you know? 
because um, it would be the end of their careers, you know? Yes, and it would be also the end, perhaps, of money getting to some of the people and causes that they are passionate about. That's right. And therefore, there is this discipline, there is this silence. There is this shadow. There is this shadow, yeah. You're listening to a conversation with John Evans and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. Yeah, I, I owe a lot to the friends, as I said, who I am longtime friends. Um, my friend Gary Schwartz, uh, Ellen Friedman, um, Ken Christensen, um, people who, through the years, we've all fallen down. And to some degree, gotten up again. Uh, but it it has, uh, I think, made all of us um, more appreciative to have those kinds of opportunities with close friends within the uh, philanthropic, both the official and the unofficial. Philanthropy. Uh, there's a even a censor on the unofficial, so you have to go down deep with these people, who are your friends, to really talk about what it's like to have almost every relationship that you have. Though we are not the donors ourselves. We are, as one friend says, we are the speed bumps in front of the donors, uh, but we are the conduits um, on, on not-so-good days. You know, I'm not sure how I would describe us, but we are uh, uh, we are in some ways asked to be um, sacrificed in a certain way from having some real relationships, though we may try. It usually is really hard, Michael. People just see money signs or they, they, um, they don't know how to be around somebody who has at least some influence to get them resources they need. We are Joseph to the Pharaoh. We are Joseph to the Pharaoh. And um, what I did was decide that I wanted my overwhelmingly primary work identity to remain on the nonprofit side. And so I stayed at Commonweal and, um, you know, found. Uh, a wonderful person, Marnie Rosen, to direct the Jennifer Altman Foundation, the Barbara Smith Fund, and, and uh, so in effect, you know, created the surround right. that, you know, uh, I wasn't the donor, but as the, you know, as the, you know, person left with these foundations, created the protection that I could to enable me, really, to stay on the nonprofit 
side. Um, and I want to say, I mean, having spoken of the shadow side, the, the pure light is um, the skill and incredible wisdom and dedication that a lot of these people bring in a world of suffering to some very effective strategies supporting very extraordinary people and causes to which people devote whole careers, whole mm -hmm. lives, you know. So the, the service of, if we look at the light side of this, you know, money is energy, we can say, and, uh, and I liken it to um, philanthropy, to like very high voltage lines, and it can kill you if you get in the wrong relationship with that line, but if you understand how skillfully to you know, move the energy so that the flow is in a really good and creative direction, which for many of us involves finding the best people on the nonprofit side and really turning the whole issue of strategy over to them and having them pick their network of colleagues. Mm -hmm. And then we're just, as one friend says, we're the supply train, you know. Mm -hmm. We're the people who are bringing up the fuel tanks or whatever to supply the people on the front lines. And if you hold yourself that way as, okay, I'm doing a useful function, one is a curatorial function of identifying really good work and identifying the people who know how to do the good strategies. Right. And then the other is basically a supply train function of you just bringing the fuel up, you know. Um, so I don't want the description of the shadow side to overwhelm the light. Um, but both are deeply there, and somehow still, it really is challenging from the soul perspective, you know. But the soul is fed, in my case, mm -hmm. by um, the relationships. That's true. And getting to meet extraordinary people on the ground is what has been mana from heaven for me uh, and uh, many many people have trusted me enough to let me into their lives a little deeper than just that superficial glance that usually the program officer gets but it's also, I want to say, when I look at my blessings, I see that my areas have always been kind of edge areas. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never wanted to work, for example, in conservation or in environment or in um, health, uh, uh, reproductive rights, and I say that knowing that those subjects are already embedded in the areas that I'm working on, uh, on the edges. But, you know, first of all, working in, in uh, early days with, uh, before we even knew that it was called AIDS, but an, an epidemic, an infectious epidemic where people were dying quickly. Um, it was a... Um, a mystery to people. Why do you want to work in that? Uh, well, what is, what is the attraction to it? Um, I, 
I couldn't exactly answer except that I was there at that time, and that's what I felt you know, I was being asked to do. And then very similarly around cultural issues in New Mexico, poor, um, uh, very um, um, rugged, independista communities who did not want anybody, didn't want philanthropy, certainly. It, it seemed charity um, was in some way demeaning. It was not solidarity. It was, it was a vertical, um, you know, um, uh, someone uh, taking pity, and that is so not, you know, what rural New Mexico is like. How to bring how to bring philanthropy there and have it be useful, mm-hmm. um, and and then indigenous people, um, you know that too was an area that I didn't feel qualified to work in at first, but I also knew that uh, I had some other qualities that might be useful if I could just you know learn the landscape. And I have been a student all these years of indigenous ways, very different from what you and I uh, might consider, you know, our routine daily life, but also uh, ways that can save the whole planet if we listen. And that message, I'm ecstatic to say, seems to be gaining in visibility and um, importance these days, where um, saving heirloom seed, um, uh, saving rainforest, um, having ceremonies and and giving um, ritual thanks for our life, Um, uh, ways in which um, Education is being um, merged with traditional knowledge systems. Um, the um, uh, the empowerment of women, indigenous women, all of those um, forces for the good have been developed over the last twenty five years. I, I'm I'm amazed. I never dreamed it would be that good mm. when I first went to a Pueblo in 1986 um, trying to help somebody with HIV. Um, I think that is the beauty. That is the power. That is the light, uh, which makes it worth it um, to a lot of people to struggle with a shadow. Um, But I I do believe that is the light. Um, And... um, I want to ask you something that uh, I'm just curious whether it resonates for you. It's something I've been reflecting on. Um, You share, in fact, you know much more than I do about contemplative practice and that kind of work. Um, You share an admiration for Brother David Steindl-Rast and his work with gratefulness and so on. You share an interest in uh, depth psychology and archetypal psychology. So, as you know, I've spent a lot of the last 18 months immersed in archetypal psychology and the study of James Hillman's work and Thomas More and others. Uh, Post-Jungian tradition, um, uh, 
that uh, posits that uh, the West really lost its way um, and that we think body, mind, spirit in the West. But in fact, if you look at the traditions, um, there's not only spirit, which tends to be associated with what moves us upward into the light, but there's soul, which lives much closer to the heart and, heart and is sort of where all the feelings and experiences hang out, and um, uh, which um, takes us down into the darkness very often. And if we don't distinguish between spirit and soul, we're really missing something very, very important. And so Hillman uh, focused his work on the soul as the central thing, just to say that. Contemplative practice, let's just take uh, the Bhagavad Gita or the Dhammapada as two examples, are designed to take us up into the light. That's what they do, you know. Um, and um, yes, we may encounter the dark along the way, but at least as I read it, as I read the Dhammapada, you know, uh, what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a man thinks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows him as the wheel of the cart follows the beast that draws the cart. So it's all about the Buddhist teaching. There's suffering, there's a path beyond suffering. Basically it's upward, it's an upward orientation. There's a discipline that carries you toward peace and toward the light. You find that also in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the parent, you know, parent religion of the Buddhist tradition. You know, Hinduism is to Buddhism as uh, Judaism is to Christianity and Islam. Um, so, um, so go ahead. I wouldn't say there's a path beyond the light. I said a path up into the light. And and maybe you said a path beyond uh, up into the light, but yeah. but no, there isn't a path beyond really. There's a there's the path, and the light and the dark are, there, there is nothing separate from the path. The light, the dark, all of it. That's what I learned. Well, that's important to me. That's where I was going. So in your view, there's a path, and it incorporates the light and the dark in equal measure. In, in whatever measure, you know, the, in a measure that changes constantly. Okay, that's important to me because that's where I was going. Because where I was going was that I was seeing not exactly a dichotomy, but a, I mean, Hillman has been criticized and acknowledges that he doesn't talk much about spirit. He's really focused on soul. And I thought to myself, it seemed to me that the contemplative traditions uh, really focused on getting you up into the light. And and I think to myself, really, you need them both. And, and therefore, that to me, that archetypal psychology is what I need to understand the depths. And contemplative practice is what I need when I have it together to try to move into the light, which is not that much of the time. And, uh, and so, um, and I've found myself, I mean, I just, so let me put it a little differently. I have a lot of friends who are so into their version of Buddhist contemplative practice uh, 
that, you know, there was a wonderful article in, in Tricycle years ago. I don't know if you remember it. I don't remember who it was by, but it, it was called Spiritual Bypass. Do you know about the article? It's by a guy, a psychotherapist, who talked about the fact that all these people involved with the contemplative practice achieved these, you know, various high levels of meditative states. But when they came back into reality and were dealing with the world, they hadn't spent any time understanding themselves as psychological human beings. And so there was this spiritual bypass that had gone around the realities of all the subpersonalities we all deal with, or the archetypes that are constantly moving through us, and the ongoing struggle of being a human being dealing with all this stuff, right? And so it just seems to me that whereas, and I'll just, and I really like what you just said, but it seems to me that the the beauty of both Buddhism and, say, yoga is the purity that they have as instruments to move toward greater peace and service in our lives. But they don't tell us a lot about life in the archetypal world, which I think is, I won't say it's more a Western tradition, but I would say that because the West developed the ego into such a strong force for individuality that it constellated the archetypes in a way that we in the West have to deal with. And that Buddhism and yoga, to take two examples, don't really address that. So I just wanted your wisdom on this question. Well, I'm fascinated by your idea that we have anything to do at all with something like choice going toward the light or toward the depth because I don't feel like I have any choice at all. I, I just fair enough. Um, you just walk the it, path and see where it takes you. Right? It, well, I'm just in the river and I'm, right, I'm right. you know, I'm watching the, right. the banks <laughs> as I go by. Right. Um, but I think of, what popped into my mind was uh, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, um, the, the Lotus Sutra, all of these seem to me to have a pantheon uh, of archetypal beings. They do, no uh, question about it. And I, I'm very much um, a, a devotee, really, of um, the way of of seeing the bodhisattvas, um, the, t- the teachers all around us all the time. Uh, I took a class, I just digressed for a second, I took a class at Green Gulch when I first got here with Reb Anderson that was called Dancing with Bodhisattvas. And when I called to register, I said, is it, is it a Buddhist class or, or is it a dance class? And the registrar said, we're not sure. <laughs> A lot of people have asked that. You'll have to come. So I did. I came to it. And it was, in fact, a more traditional sort of Buddhist class in some ways. But what Reb taught, being that he is a tango aficionado. I didn't know that. Uh huh. I thought it was an interesting new dimension to him, too, was that the bodhisattvas are waiting to be asked to dance all the time. They're right here. And that is not to say that there 
is uh, only the dance of the light at all. Uh, what I know of Buddhism, which is not very much really, is that it allows for and, and asks us to accept it all and to know that, that the grief and the pain and the suffering, those dances, those steps in the big dance um, are, are just as important to know and to acknowledge as the ecstasies and the transcendent states. Um, it, what I also liked just for a second that Reb talked about was he said that he couldn't stand the the calcified gender roles in tango uh, and found himself thinking, like wondering what he was going to do to either forget tango or change it and he got involved with a group here in San Francisco called Tango Confusion where they switch partners in the middle of the dance Yes. They switch roles. They switch it? roles. I mean, I'm sorry. They switch roles. Yes. So the the woman the lead. women lead, mm -hmm. and the men follow, um, and then they switch back, and then they switch again, and it, they do it in an intuitive way. Now, you know how this actually looks as a dance. I don't know whether it's attractive to see, but the just the you know description of it for me gives huge you know, creative license in the practice that I'm involved in because I see I am not stuck in a role. I am not either the, the keeper of the dark, which I, as a young person I really thought um, there's a line in Amazing Grace, a wretch like me. I, I really thought I was a wretch uh, and it's taken me a lot of years to see that that is not the only role that I might carry. Uh, and that there are and have been so many blessings, as I said earlier, you know, in my life. What is the practice you're involved with now? I'm a member of the Everyday Zen Sangha. What is that? Uh, Norman Fisher, who was abbot at Zen Center for many years, um, retired from there and began uh, sitting with friends, as he called it, about 10 years ago. I think there are now eight or nine everyday Zen communities uh, along mostly the West Coast from British Columbia down to Mexico. And they are communities with no temples. Um, our Sangha meets once a week in a congregational church. We meet once a month for an all-day meditation at the Headlands. Uh, we have a what we call a Dharma dialogue, another each month in a different Buddhist center somewhere in the Bay Area, so we get a chance to see what other people are doing. Um, you know, Jean, you... Um, uh, um, I would... I'm honored to call you a friend, and um, you have such an extraordinary network of people whose lives 
you have touched and who have touched you. Um, I wonder, you know, as we both sit here on a sunny morning in uh, early November 2013, um, how you you see where you are now in your life and uh, what your hopes are for this next mysterious unfolding chapter? Well, I started out talking about the monk and all of us. There's a phrase by Dogen, Zen master, very important poet, uh, and and someone who cared so deeply about Zen that he he questioned it, and I want to say honed it. And, and maybe returned it to a, a way um, of being that, that, you know, certain cultural traditions had perhaps obscured it. He had this phrase about being no one in particular. And I've been attracted to the uh, monk, the the no one, uh, Brother David really epitomizes it to me in the world and also knowing how to take refuge and to offer refuge in, in whatever pursuit I'm involved in. So I'm headed to being no one in particular. Sean Evans, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to a conversation with Sean Evans and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.